Hello, and welcome to another special episode of the Vampire Historian Podcast for October 2016. Uh, this is the second interview for this week, this time with author David J. Skull, who is very well known in the horror and vampire um, film industry especially. Um, he is the author of Hollywood Gothic, which was a book about Dracula um, from stage to screen. He is the author of The Monster Show... The uh, Romancing the Vampire, V is for Vampire, and a brand new biography about Bram Stoker called Something in the Blood and the Untold Story of Bram Stoker, the Man Who Wrote Dracula, uh, as well as several other books. Um, he also did a lot of the commentary for the Universal um, DVDs of Dracula and other movies that came out in the late 90s. So you can find uh, lots of documentaries there that he uh, produced, as well as um, uh, the commentary on those DVDs. So uh, quite a big amount of work that he's done over the past um, about 25 years um, in the area, especially of film. Um, he was in Dallas today to talk uh, about the Spanish version of Dracula from 1931, and um, which he helped to, to rediscover, and um, also to while he's on his book tour here. Um, this interview uh, we did today, just a little... Um, Kind of a little disclaimer at the beginning, uh, my normal microphone setup was not working, so we had to record this with a different kind of microphone, and um, it picked up a little bit more sound, so uh, we were in a hotel lobby, so you'll hear some um, outside sounds a few times, but um, hopefully that won't uh, um, mess up the podcast too much. There are uh, some groups of people that kind of walk by and things like that. Um, but other than that, I think the audio should be okay, and I uh, hope you enjoy this interview. Um, I also wanted to tell you that uh, the Vampire Story Podcast now has a Patreon um, page. You can go to Patreon and search for the Vampire Story, or you can go to thevampirestoring.com slash pledge. And Patreon is a monthly pledge service um, for things like podcasts, um, movies, and other things like that, where you can pledge monthly um, anywhere from a dollar um, a month up to you know whatever amount you feel comfortable with. Um, and there's different goals. Uh, the first goal for this podcast is going to be about to try to raise $40 a month. That will help to um, help me do more interviews, especially. Um, part of it is uh, I can raise my hosting um, time from three hours to six hours a month. Uh, right now I can't do more than three hours a month on the podcast. Um, but some of these interviews are getting long, so I'm running out of time. So um, that will really help uh, increase that time. It will also help... Um, pay the subscription fee for the interview software that we uh, use for long-distance interviews. Um, if you heard the interview with uh, Jess Peacock last week, that was done with them um, over the phone uh, with a special software, and um, that software costs money. So uh, if you're interested in pledging, again, thevampirestoring.com slash pledge. Um, after that, there are other goals, and we'll try to meet um, for travel, to do more episodes about different kinds of things. So... Um, uh, please take a look over there. It's uh, really simple and easy to do. And again, you can do as low as a dollar a month uh, if you'd like to to um, help out with the podcast. But here is uh, my interview today with David J. Skull. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, I'm here with author David J. Skull, and we're going to be talking a little bit today about his many, many books on vampires, horror, Dracula, and his newest book about Bram Stoker. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for asking. Great, thank you. So you're in Dallas um, today in the middle of a big, huge book tour for your new book. Yeah, the book uh, officially came out at the beginning of the month, mm -hmm. but uh, the uh, press interest seems to grow exponentially as Halloween approaches. So right. it's, it's turned into a, a full month of uh, 
crisscrossing the country and um, meeting a lot of great people and mm -hmm. uh, the books received a very nice response so far and uh, uh, just a few days to go uh, my expiration date is Halloween right <laughs> as usual number, uh, we, uh, October is always a busy month for I think all of us in the field and then all of a sudden November 1st comes and nobody cares <laughs> exactly. sometimes anymore yeah but uh, so tell us a little bit about um, we'll talk about the book in a minute maybe about how you got started um, with this interest in um, in Bram Stoker and Dracula well I was a uh, uh, one of the I was what you could call a prototypical monster kid in mm -hmm. the early 1960s. Uh, the old Universal films were being released to television, and there was a great proliferation of uh, fan magazines, Famous Monsters, Castle of Frankenstein. Uh, there was Bobby Boris Pickett and the Monster Mash. There mm -hmm. was... Uh, 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 it, it, it was a really kind of heady time for monsters. Uh, I was part of it. And um, I grew up then. I did other things for most of the rest of my life and only returned to Monsters nearly at the age of 40. Um, I had been publishing fiction. I started mm -hmm. out as a science fiction writer, and my agent asked me, uh, have you ever thought about doing nonfiction? And I said, well, no, tell me about it. She said, well, you can get a, you can actually get an advance. You mm -hmm. get money. You don't have to finish the book. You can submit a proposal and an outline and they, they pay you to finish it and I said that sounds great mm -hmm. and uh, she asked me to come up with some topics and I said well you know I, uh, when I was younger I was just totally totally fascinated with monsters especially Dracula and for some reason I've seen that movie oh at least a hundred times mm -hmm. and uh, I've never read the backstory though you know, and I was—I had been working in the professional theater for quite a while. Uh, as it turns out, Bram Stoker worked in the theater for exactly the same number of years I did. Oh wow! Um, and because uh, I knew when whatever you know gets up there uh, on stage or on screen, however interesting that story is, the backstory is usually juicier, mm -hmm. and there there are always interesting personalities and. And uh, so I embarked on uh, a book that uh, came to be known as Hollywood Gothic. And um, it really kind of set the... Uh, I didn't realize I was eventually going to do a big Stoker biography. Mm -hmm. But there were things I, I noticed about Dracula that uh, kind of interested me about Dracula, especially the connection between Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde, mm -hmm. who was his... Uh, Romantic rival in Dublin. They both uh, courted the same beautiful Dublin girl, Florence mm -hmm. Balcom, and uh, Stoker ended up marrying her. But uh, their lives were intertwined in a fascinating way until Wilde's downfall. And, uh, you know, they both wrote uh, masterpieces of macabre fiction uh, in which supernaturally young. Um, monsters destroy Victorian innocence. Um, they uh, both had uh, mothers who were uh, extremely strong presence, presences in, in their lives, uh, although of diametrically opposed temperaments. They were fascinated as children with uh, uh, fairy tales and I Irish folklore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
they both uh, moved to London about the same time to work in the theater and uh, Wilde became a very popular playwright in the West End and Stoker was the manager for the Lyceum Theater his mm -hmm. employer was Henry Irving the great Victorian actor manager uh, who many feel is a at least a partial inspiration for the character right. of Dracula himself he might well be I think if he uh, is it was unconscious on Stoker's part mm -hmm. uh, uh, the the line that's been uh, repeated over and over is that um, Dracula was kind of Stoker's revenge on a really demanding boss and mm -hmm. <laughs> Irving really was a boss from hell mm -hmm. uh, but he worshipped Irving blindly and I think he would be shocked and appalled that uh, his unconscious mind was uh, uh, getting back at Irving for all of his all of his crimes I uh, you have to realize also when Stoker wrote Dracula uh, there were Freudian ideas were not uh, uh, really popularized uh, Freud mm -hmm. was only beginning right. to, to to publish I think the word psychoanalysis was first introduced the year Stoker wrote Dracula so nobody knew about the unconscious nobody knew about subtexts mm -hmm. and uh, uh, so to understand Dracula as it was read in its own time we have to kind of uh, let go of that because today we just see uh, books like Dracula and the picture of Dorian Gray almost completely through a psychosexual mm -hmm. you know kind of lens uh, that would have um, uh, puzzled both both authors and if you look at the um, particularly the I don't know if you uh, watched Penny Dreadful at all I loved the, it I, I the, devoured every minute you know, of how it. they especially the way Dorian Gray is portrayed you know, that's that's they really went with that in, in his portrayal, especially. And uh, I, I was so s sad to see that series. Uh, right, and nobody knew. Abruptly canceled. They, uh, uh, well, they said they said they knew about it, but they didn't tell anyone. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting portrayal of uh, Dracula as this, uh, you know, uh, even older being equal to, uh, you know, almost equal to the the brother of the devil, mm -hmm. I believe. So. It was especially fun for me because it was uh, Penny Dreadful was uh, filmed in Dublin uh, mm -hmm. and environs, and uh, many of the locations were once very familiar to me because mm -hmm. I did I, I, I had a visiting research fellowship at Trinity College Dublin, mm -hmm. and um, many of the college buildings were used. The the uh, Natural History Museum, right, where Dracula uh, worked, where Dracula worked <laughs> uh, is a place I I know, and I actually made a connection. I mean, before I knew anything about Penny Dreadful, mm -hmm. that uh, if Stoker had uh, ideas about um, evolution, uh, they probably would have come from the that museum, which uh, was known locally as the Dead Museum mm -hmm. because it was all uh, uh, stuffed with taxidermy. Sure. Uh, Appropriately stuffed mm. with taxidermy, <laughs> uh, but there were just uh, uh, just so many times during the series that uh, I was in that room, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I loved it. And it was just beautifully, beautifully produced and acted. Yeah. So that first book with the Hollywood Gothic um, kind of came out right before a big, you know, recurrence of Dracula, uh, in a way. I guess in 1990, and we've had so many. 
you know different versions come since then. You redid uh, reput the book out in two thousand four. It was, I, I uh, did a, a, a revised edition of it mm-hmm. in 2004. And, um, but uh, Dracula hardly ever goes out of fashion. Right. The image of Dracula changes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for a long time he seemed to descend into a kind of a comp, uh, camp comedy mm-hmm. figure. And, uh, and then somebody always comes along and and uh, uh, gives it a different jolt of life, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, the whole cultural attitude and interest in vampires, uh, you know, underwent a sea change with the arrival of Anne Rice. Mm-hmm. And uh, she took her vampires seriously and made them into romantic anti-heroes. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and just detonated, you know, what has become kind of a vampire renaissance uh, People um, are always asking me why the revived interest in vampires, and I said, "Well, the interest never went away. Right? It, it, it's just always there. <clears throat> the character of Dracula, especially, is just permeates mm-hmm. popular culture, like the image of the Frankenstein monster. Uh, everybody knows who these things are, right. even if they've never read the novel or mm-hmm. or uh, seen the movies. Um, you can ask any ten-year-old uh, kid to." talk like Dracula and mm-hmm. he'll do a passable imitation of Bela Lugosi right. probably filtered through Count Chocula mm-hmm. and, and uh, Sesame Street or walk like the Frankenstein monster mm-hmm. and they know how to do that too I find it interesting that uh, it seems as many people as have played Dracula and as many people know Dracula is the most filmed character of all time um, there seem to only be a few though that generations kind of cling to as there you know the older generations have Bela Lugosi, the middles have Christopher Lee, people my age probably think Gary Oldman just because that's the biggest movie that came out during the time, but there have been so many other people, and it seems like there's a lot of attempts now to create a Dracula for the new generation, but none of them seem to be sticking. You know, NBC tried it with Jonathan Reese Myers, they're like, oh, let's take the guy from the Tudors and make him Dracula, and that didn't go so well. The Penny Dreadful didn't have enough time, I don't think, to... No, Dracula really was just that, getting you know, going when they and, uh, um, pulled the plug. You know, so many other... There's a, at least one or two B or C movies every year that straight to DVD, but various... I thought it was interesting, the um, the actor that played Van Helsing on um, the NBC Dracula played Dracula in Dario Argento's Dracula. Right, right. And, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to put all these people in, but uh, I don't know if this generation is going to have anybody yet. I don't know if Luke Evans is going to... If he comes back and they're going to try to make him the the Dracula for this generation, I know, you, Universal hasn't. Uh, they're once again going to re-bo- reboot their their monster franchise, and they haven't decided mm. whether Dracula Untold is going mm. to be the first of be considered or categorized right. as the first of these, or whether they're going to do yet another new mm. Dracula. I mean, they tried to set up the the end for a new modern version, I, and I've always heard they're going to try to do an the Monsters Avengers, you know, where eventually they'll all be together in one big movie, and uh, I don't know how that will go. I think Penny Dreadful did it better, probably, than most people will try to do it. To yes, I, th- I think I'm, they, they really updated the whole idea of the uh, the Monster Rally films. Mm-hmm. They're, they're sometimes called uh, House mm-hmm. of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. Um, 
In, originally, Universal wanted to put the mummy into the, the first one, mm -hmm. and uh, that probably would have just pushed it a little over the edge. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, the monsters travel in packs. Mm -hmm. Wherever one pops up, another one is trailing right behind, and you're going to encounter that one too. And they always work for Dracula, like in the Judd Hirsch. Uh TV movie from the 80s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of Universal, then, that kind of leads me, um, you did the uh, commentary on many of the Universal Dracula movies and the, some of the other vampire films, and then also a documentary for the 1999 release. How did you get involved with Universal? Yeah, in fact, I, I, uh, I produced, uh, wrote, and direct all of the um, supplementary materials mm -hmm. on those DVDs and the special editions. All the special stuff was me, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a great time with it. it uh, I did uh, a dozen of those discs. Mm -hmm. um, it started because I had independently produced a behind-the-scenes documentary on the making of the film Gods and Monsters, mm -hmm. which uh, was a wonderful experience. Uh, I mean, just having the privilege to be uh, involved with the film, you know, for really from inception through and every day of the filming and. Uh, you know, I, we really had to just camp out on the set and just waiting for the uh, um, the opportunity to take a shot or uh, uh, you know lasso an actor into um, an interview while they were mm -hmm. uh, setting up an another scene. And uh, because there was no time, it was it was done on a budget. It was produced in 21 days, mm -hmm. and. Um, an amazing, amazing experience. I mean, just to see actors like this up close and personal. Um, Ian McKellen, Lynn Redgrave, and Brendan Fraser uh, were total professionals mm -hmm. and were able to pull this off under uh, in a highly pressurized environment. Um, there's almost not a scene in the film Ian isn't in, so he was uh, carrying a lot of it on his shoulders. And... Um, they were all, uh, you know, magicians of acting in their own ways. I, uh, I will never forget that experience. And it's also fun when the first movie you work on goes on to win an Academy Award. Sure. Uh, so uh, it was kind of a peak experience. The very mm -hmm. first year I was uh, living in California. And so Universal just they approached you then, or well, they ended up uh, Lionsgate produced uh, released Gods and Monsters mm -hmm. and. Uh, Universal bought the rights for the DVD, mm -hmm. and uh, so they the the film producers put me in touch with them, and um, they liked what they saw. Mm -hmm. um, it was a half-hour documentary called "The World of Gods and Monsters: A Journey with James Whale," and um, they said, "Well, you know, we've got uh, the Mummy coming up, a special edition of the Karloff." film. They were just starting to release mm -hmm. uh, DVDs of the, uh, the classic films, and these extras and documentaries and commentaries were uh, were, were part of the bait, mm -hmm. you know, to get people away from the VHS experience right. into, into digital. And um, and I said, well, are you doing anything else besides The Mummy? And they said, oh yeah, we're going to do all, uh, all of the classic films and I said well uh, yes I want to do The Mummy but I want to do them all for you mm -hmm. and uh, and they said terrific and, I mean I never had a meeting like this mm -hmm. that you go in expecting nothing right and 
uh, coming out with a half million dollar budget mm-hmm. to uh, run off and uh, you know produce a dozen uh, dozen documentaries. Uh, so eighteen <clears throat> months, I was twenty four seven monsters, and mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm very proud of some some of the work, especially because I was able to um, uh, restore things like the uh, censored line from Frankenstein. In the name of God, now mm. I know what it feels like to be God, mm. and that was missing uh, forever uh, from the first since the first release of the film in 1931. Mm. Uh, it upset the censors, and um, I was the first to uh, put it back. I just, mm. you know, I just uh, laid it in to the clip in the documentary and the preservation people took notice of what I had done <laughs> and, and now it's back in the film itself and uh, um, there, there were just so many moments like that and getting to meet um, a number of the actors I mean mostly I, I talked to uh, other film historians right. and, and experts and family members of, of some of the actors mm-hmm. but with Creature from the Black Lagoon I actually had three wow uh, the three, the two creatures, and the leading lady, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was especially fun. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with, since most of the, you know, most DVD commentaries they try to get the crew or the actors, and with of course most of those they weren't <laughs> weren't available. So that's really really great to be able to get people like that. So um, one of the things uh, that you've done, and one of the things you're doing here tonight in Dallas is. You're going to be talking about the Spanish version of Dracula from 1931. Can you talk a little yes. bit about that that film? I think most the first time I found out about it was when I first got the DVD, the 1999 DVD that had both versions on it, um, and didn't really know about it before that. So, uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about the the Spanish version of Dracula? Why, why it's important? Yeah, I was the first one to really uh, um, beat a drum for the Spanish version of Dracula mm-hmm. in the the uh, days of the early talkies. Before dubbing had uh, been perfected, the excitement of uh, movies, talking movies, was to hear actors speak in their natural voices. Mm -hmm. And half of studios' revenues came from the foreign markets. And so for a few years, it was not uncommon for secondary uh, productions of the English language product to be shot on the same sets mm-hmm. uh, mostly most of the time with different different actors right. unless somebody was bilingual and uh, the Spanish version of Dracula was one of the most elaborate mm-hmm. of these and uh, the complete uh, negative did not survive and so this beautiful print of the film existed at the Library of Cong- Congress missing a crucial reel where mm-hmm. Dracula travels from um, Transylvania to London and meets the uh, the, the rest of the cast mm-hmm. and uh, so it was impossible to uh, restore it or re-release it uh, in any way that made financial sense for mm-hmm. the studio And uh, but there was supposed to be a complete print at uh, the Cinemateca de Cuba the mm-hmm. Cuban Film Archive in Havana and um, I uh, sent them some telegrams and they sent some back and they invited me to come take a look yes we have a very nice print of the Mm -hmm. Spanish film and uh, so I got a special visa from the 
Treasury Department. It's a lot easier today now to travel right. to Cuba than it was back then, but you could do it if you were mm-hmm. a journalist or an educator. And um, so I spent three days with this amazing film, and it was an old beat-up print, but it was, mm-hmm. it was complete. And I uh, made uh, frame blow-ups uh, that I included in Hollywood Gothic, mm-hmm. and it all came to the attention of Universal. And so through a roundabout way, through, uh, I, I believe it was the Mexican, uh, through UCLA's film department, via the uh, Mexican film archives in mm. Mexico City, who got the print from, from Cuba, wow. that it was able to, uh, they, Universal was able to legally mm-hmm. get a hold of the, uh, the missing material. And uh, it was funny. We, I was here in Dallas, uh, the USA Film Festival screened the incomplete print, mm-hmm. and I projected, uh, you know, frame blow-ups from the missing material. Oh, wow. <laughs> at the, it was the USA Film Festival, and uh, Lupita Tovar and her, mm-hmm. the star of the film, and her family were also here. And uh, the following year, it was released on home video, first in VHS. There were people at Universal who. Uh, opposed its being released mm-hmm. because of that third reel, which was of a uh, really uh, inferior quality to the uh, the rest of the film, which was stunning. Mm-hmm. It was from the original nit- nitrate negative, and uh, to my mind, it just was making a very strong point about film preservation. Mm-hmm. You know, half the movies ever made are gone, right. and uh, this is what happens when you know something's lost. Well, it did. It was released and uh, was a big smash hit on home video. It opened up the the Hispanic market for Universal, and uh, it actually sold better than one of their prestige releases that year, which was Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it was uh, restored uh, for a theatrical print as well. And uh, I went to many film festivals, and uh, Lupita Tovar uh, accompanied me to some of them. And uh, um, and here was the Spanish Dracula. I mean, a lot of people have problems with the the Todd Browning version, right. which is mm-hmm. seems slow and creaky. It mm-hmm. doesn't just seem slow and creaky; it really is. Right. And uh, the Spanish film, for reasons I describe in my books, mm-hmm. was a rival production. Sure. And so, uh, in many ways, it tried to upstage. Mm-hmm. They were able to look at the uh, the daily rushes and mm-hmm. uh, go uh, go improve on them. And so, it, it visually is a much more interesting mm-hmm. uh, film in terms of its lightings and some of its special effects, and and uh, not its uh, Dracula, however. I mean, the one indelible thing about Todd Browning's film is mm-hmm. is uh, introducing us to Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Right. Uh, the Spanish actor Carlos Villarías, who uh, wore Lugosi's cape and uh, uh, even his hairpiece in mm-hmm. the in, in the film, it's it's the same hair you can tell from the you know mm-hmm. from the stills. Um, is almost a comic uh, presence. It mm-hmm. seems to really be overdoing it. Um, but it's one of the few times where you've got this wonderful documentation of two separate versions of the same film, right. you know, being produced, uh, you know, by a Hollywood studio, mm-hmm. and uh, you can uh, watch them endlessly and compare and contrast, and 
and it was a lot of fun. But it was like you know, for people who feel like me, who felt uh, a little cheated by the deficiencies of the first film, mm-hmm. it was like being able to go back, and it's like one of those dreams where you find new rooms in an old familiar house, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so that was my other uh, contribution to film preservation, and uh, I was just very happy to do it. And it was just because I, w- I was curious. You know, when, when I get curious about something, I'm like a dog with a bone. I just won't let go of it. Sure. Sometimes I don't know what I'm getting into. <laughs> All of my books have been like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I write the books that I'd like to read but can't find anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I find out when I get into them why I can't find them and right. the difficulties <laughs> of doing them. And this last book, my, my new book, uh, Something in the Blood, the mm-hmm. untold story of Bram Stoker, uh, is maybe the biggest example of that. Uh, it, it took o- over six years, mm-hmm. you know, from conception to publication. and um, Almost the same time as Dracula. <laughs> yes, Dracula yeah. was about seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I spent the same amount of time on my book as Stoker did on Dracula, and I worked in the theater the same number of years that he did. But um, So I am kind of retiring from Dracula books, mm-hmm. anything book-length having to do with Stoker or, or Lugosi. Um, I'm, I probably have some vampire material left in me, sure. uh, but uh, I'm happy to pass the baton on to mm-hmm. a new generation. A uh, quarter of a century is um, quite a long time to be... Uh, joined at the hip with sure. Count Dracula. <laughs> so I, you've been, um, you've done a lot of writing and other interviews and stuff talking about your opinion on Lugosi's Dracula and also your opinion on the Coppola movie. Of all the others, what would you, who would you say is your favorite film Dracula? Well, when people ask me that question, and they do a yeah, lot, I'm sure. I say, well, my favorite version um, doesn't exist, but it would be a mashup of the... Uh, the, the best uh, adapted and evoked scenes from all the different versions mm-hmm. from, from Nosferatu in 1922 through both Universal versions um, and the Universal remake with Frank Langella they mm-hmm. all have wonderful things I was um, for many years I really uh, disliked the, uh, the Coppola film mm-hmm. but uh, I just introduced a screening of it the other night in Denver mm-hmm. at the the Alamo Draft House, and uh, where they served uh, one course of um, uh, insect hors d'oeuvres. Oh, nice! Yeah. To uh, <laughs> you know, for the Renfield in you, mm-hmm. um, and I really enjoyed it this time mm-hmm. around. And I think one of the things I've, uh, one of the realizations I've come to with the Stoker book is that Dracula works and exists and survives because of his transformations. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he was a static character, if mm-hmm. Stoker had uh, delineated him as a, a as a as a full-bodied, you know, fictional character, mm-hmm. uh, he might not have had the staying power. Mm-hmm. And he's an off-stage presence. Mm-hmm. He uh, in the book, and uh, people worry about him and anticipate about uh, anticipate him and and uh, write about him, mm-hmm. but uh, he's not there. Right. And in the same way, Dracula kind of t- uh, takes his final shape in the back of our mm-hmm. minds. You know, this is why radio drama and stories around the campfire are terrific ways mm-hmm. to tell scary stories. And Stoker understood that. I think he would have understood that to... He wanted Dracula to appear on the stage. 
Um, Dracula, as he first conceived him, would not have worked because uh, the stage is a confined space, mm-hmm. and the way Dracula ultimately was done was a in the, the form of a drawing room mystery melodrama. Mm-hmm. And Stoker's Dracula was not the kind of character you could plausibly invite into a proper drawing room. Right. And that's where the sea change with mm-hmm. Dracula took place. And the, he got manners, and he got a wardrobe, and he got the smarmy Transylvanian charm. Stoker's Dracula isn't charming. He is not seductive. He's a hideous old man who drinks blood uh, and becomes younger, but he never becomes attractive. Right. Um, but that's something the public always wanted. It was part of the the vampire tradition before Stoker, mm-hmm. uh, the Byronic man, the right. uh, the uh, the fatal man, the uh, lady killing aristocrat with uh, mm-hmm. uh, with all the decadence, uh, you know, attending. Uh, that was a figure we saw. You know, it, it took shape in the romantic. Uh, era of literature uh, there were vampires on stage uh, in opera uh, mm-hmm. uh, penny dreadful novels uh, right. Arnie, Arnie the vampire was a big influence on Dracula but Stoker uh, turned his back on that and he wanted to create a, a new kind of vampire a Darwinian vampire um, who was in, to some extent scientifically plausible mm-hmm. uh, Evolution was a very controversial topic at the time, and um, because of its challenge to to religion, and mm-hmm. I think this is one of the major things that Dracula does. It pulls together uh, 19th century ideas about science and 19th century ideas about religion, and it's not really an elegant fit. Mm-hmm. But Stoker preserves the idea of an afterlife. It's a pretty gruesome afterlife, but it's t- there's still something after death. Sure. And uh, while um, you know observing um, the scientific realities, he medicalizes vampirism. Mm-hmm. He uh, uh, was the first to you know locate the site of the bite to the jugular mm-hmm. vein because uh, that would be the logical place to do it. Earlier vampires they uh, drew the blood uh, from over the heart. Mm-hmm. You know the heart being the seat of the emotions and the passions and. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's poetic, but Stoker wanted his vampire to be believable mm-hmm. to uh, Victorian readers. And although we think of Dracula as a kind of historical novel, mm-hmm. um, it was very up to date for its time. It was uh, people read it the way they read Stephen King novels, mm-hmm. and they they uh, uh, saw Stoker uh, invoking familiar brand names and. And uh, locations around uh, uh, the Kodak cameras in Dracula, uh, Herod's department stores in Dracula. Uh, it uh, and this was one of the things that the early critics commented about upon the most. They complimented Stoker on blending this medieval superstition with uh, uh, an up-to-date setting, and which had never been done before, so mm-hmm. it was groundbreaking in terms of uh, uh, literature, and uh, Dracula went, Dracula went on to become one of the best-selling novels of the 20th century. The reach is incredible. It's now mm-hmm. in its third century. It's a product of um, as a literary uh, story, 
It mm. was conceived in the 19th century, flourished in the 20th century, and is still with us in the 21st. Um, it's more than a, a novel. I think you, you have to let go of ordinary ways, you, mm. uh, ordinary values you, you, you place on fiction. Uh, the critical standards kind of go out the window because Dracula shifts. Dracula had his origins in the oral tradition of folklore and, and superstition. Stoker transplanted that. It's as if Dracula just lighted temporarily in the, <laughs> the realm of the, the English novel, mm-hmm. but then um, uh, took flight again and had his greatest success in the age of the moving image. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of bridged all of the major uh, eras and uh, uh, categories of storytelling. Um, you really have to take a cross-disciplinary approach to uh, uh, understand Dracula. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and even that, then you never get to the bottom of it. Because mm-hmm. Stoker created an incomplete character. Everyone who reads Dracula uh, finishes the character in the back mm-hmm. of his own mind. Where the scariest things, of course, of course, always lurk, and uh, he may not have intended this, but I think that's what made Dracula immortal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always reading the book is a highly uh, participatory experience right. for the reader. And it's not a narrative. Yeah, I, think, I think a lot of people who haven't, who've only ever seen the movies, when they go to read the book and they start reading it, they're like, "Wait a minute," because I, the, I we have classes that read it or the college where I work all the time and the students are like what is, why is this all written in letters and newspaper art? you know it's very interesting because you don't get you never get Dracula's uh, first person account of what he's doing or why he's doing anything it's always just several different people kind of giving you their take on him so we, we don't really know you know, yeah. The exact image. Yeah, I think uh, Stoker had in mind a much more um, morally compromised, uh, uh, a, a licentious, uh, mm-hmm. uh, vice ridden creature uh, uh, drawn from the old um, Gothic novels, uh, mm-hmm. uh, The Monk, The Italian. Uh, this just wouldn't fly, though, in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde created a firestorm of possibility uh, of uh, controversy. Mm-hmm. It was um, uh, just denounced everywhere as an immoral book. Uh, it was used as evidence against Wilde in his trial, and uh, it is, I think, the kind of book Stoker would have liked to have written himself. Mm-hmm. There are many inter- interesting similarities. Um, it was published. The, uh, at exactly the same summer, Stoker was up in uh, Whitby on vacation, mm-hmm. um, transcribing uh, epitaphs of uh, tombstones and, and discovering the name Dracula in a mm-hmm. Whitby library. Uh, but he wanted to make money. He did not want to write a controversial book. And um, this is my conclusion. Um, Stoker didn't leave us papers and diaries and mm-hmm. records of his intentions. Uh, Dracula was pared back, whittled away, really. Uh, and the story takes on the shape of a kind of a fairy tale for adults. Um, and nobody 
as much as they complained about the uh, picture of Dorian Gray and were scandalized by it, nobody noticed anything out of uh, out of order uh, from a morality standpoint mm-hmm. about Dracula as Stoker wrote it. Um, it was uh, received as an entertainment, and uh, as I said, Freud Freud had not. Um, made any kind of a splash at that time mm-hmm. and it was only in the it wasn't until the 1950s that Dracula was looked at psychoanalytically by critics and uh, academics mm-hmm. and uh, now the uh, Dracula scholarship has just uh, exploded I mean it, mm-hmm. um, the book seems to be able to be all things to all people at this time of the year, uh, we're coming up on Halloween and coming up on the, the presidential election. I like to say that Dracula is the perfect politician right. because mm-hmm. he is all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, uh, can shift from role to role, from, uh, from adaptation to adaptation, and this is how he stays alive. Mm-hmm. This is the... Uh, this is the key to immortality. Dracula never gets stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. He's always willing to do what he needs to do and become who he needs to become. Great. So to, to kind of finish up, um, you want to tell us a little bit about the idea behind the new book and kind of what you were looking at with going into Stoker's life, kind of the or what you were hoping to accomplish, maybe. Yeah, I I thought I was going to find. Uh, things I didn't, but I found other things that were mm-hmm. more interesting. I think it is this uh, idea that uh, Stoker really ne- never left his childhood, that the uh, Dracula had very little to do uh, from an inspiration standpoint with uh, the historical Vlad the Impaler. Right. Um, Stoker was glancingly uh, uh, familiar mm-hmm. with the story, but he, he really plotted the book out before he discovered right. the name Dracula, meaning son of the devil. Um, it's not even clear that Stoker knew of uh, Vlad's uh, you know, connection to impalement. Right. Uh, I can't find any evidence of that. Yeah, the, the Wilkinson doesn't mention impaling at all. In the, yeah, and the historical the Dracula yeah. did not have anything to do with uh, vampires right. um, in, in folklore or legend. Uh, the uh, the wooden stakes are, are, are just a complete win- a coincidence. Mm-hmm. It, uh, um, but uh, what Stoker really drew upon were uh, were fairy tales and and um, and and folklore and especially the Christmas pantomimes that mm-hmm. were part of uh, a child's life and. In England and Ireland, in in, in those days, uh, and uh, I unearthed, uh, you know, for for the first time, and uh, since Stoker wrote them, you know, a series of amazing uh, theater reviews um, of the Christmas pantomimes, in which mm-hmm. he reveals his passion for them. <laughs> um, these are some this is some of the most emotional writing he ever he ever did. Those, and of course, his. Uh, uh, homoerotic correspondence with Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. These are the most personal documents right. uh, that we we have, and uh, uh, and that was just uh, a complete revelation. And I knew I was going to find uh, a lot of ways to 
intermingle Oscar Wilde's life with that of Stoker, but uh, was surprised at other things I found. Uh, just uh, Wilde's mother, Lady Jane Wilde, was a folklorist and a um, uh, a society hostess. Mm. She had literary uh, uh, salons that were the mm-hmm. toast of, 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 of Dublin, and she was a flamboyant uh, and in many ways controversial character. Um, she was really over the top uh, in, in terms of the way she dressed and the way she deported herself. Uh, but she became like a, um, a surrogate mother to, to Bram, and one of those famous lines from Dracula children of the night mm-hmm. you know, which we associate with the vocal stylings of Bela Lugosi right. or really uh, came from the mother of Oscar Wilde mm-hmm. in one of her books, her folklore histories, she uh, used the phrase children of the night to describe the ancient warrior tribes mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of, of Ireland uh, the berserker like mm-hmm. uh, uh, um troops of that time and uh, Stoker never forgot that and it pops up right there in in, in, in his novel um, I don't think Stoker knew exactly where he was going with with the book most of his other novels he seems to have written almost like automatic writing mm-hmm. like he was taking dictation this is why I think his handwriting uh, is so legendarily uh, illegible. Mm. Uh, he was writing s- quickly just to try to keep up with his own thoughts. Right. And with Dracula, though, it seems to be the one book he had second thoughts about. He stopped mm. and start started. He tried to get a, uh, a ghost writer or a ghost editor at mm. one uh, at one point and didn't succeed at that. But. Um, Dracula, I think, finally, you know, had smooth sailing once he uh, let go mm-hmm. of trying to control the character of, of Dracula and let it uh, let him just spill forth from his um, his childhood influences and and uh, it's uh, and here he is still with us, right? <laughs> just as popular, it's just just a matter of coming up. Uh, I mean. <laughs> Stoker's uh, his 169th birthday is coming up, mm-hmm. November 8th, and um, people know very little about Stoker. They right. know all about Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stoker's name is almost as famous right. as Dracula's, but uh, he's become a character in many of the book. Many he uh, has. I think that's. Fiction, I think that's the next stop. Uh, I would Dracula. like to see. I would like to see uh, uh, a top-notch novelist. Mm-hmm. Get into his head fictionally. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of speculation, but I, I I limit my speculation to okay. What do we know, and what is the most likely thing we can surmise mm-hmm. about Bram Stoker and and Dracula? Um, but perhaps somebody should really uh, really tear loose with it mm-hmm. and. Uh, He deserves it. He deserves mm-hmm. to be as uh, famous as his creation, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so I've made a contribution in that direction, and uh, mm-hmm. people are free to mm-hmm. embellish it's, it's, it. It's a very good and large contribution, so <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah, it's over mm-hmm. 650 pages long. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't uh, quite expect that. Uh, 
and it, the logistics of lugging copies of it through airports <laughs> much more right. twice as difficult as any of my previous books <laughs> I'm sure well, so, and the, so the book's available now and uh, it's available now it's uh, you know it, uh, uh, from your local independent bookstore please if you can mm-hmm. but um, also from um, uh, amazon.com mm-hmm. and barnesandnoble.com there's a uh, unabridged audio book Mm-hmm. Okay. 22 hours on 17 discs mm-hmm. and uh, it's also available from Audible as mm-hmm. a, a download uh, and there is a, a Kindle and a Nook version so okay. you've got a lot of ways to access uh, mm-hmm. something in the blood um, if you would like a personally signed copy uh, get in touch with uh, Dark Delicacies the uh, America's premier horror emporium in Burbank, California mm-hmm. darkdell.com and uh, I live nearby, and anytime they need a special uh, inscription, I'm happy to trot over there and give it to you. Oh, great. And um, you had one other book published this year, and since Halloween's coming around, would you like to plug that book as well? Yes, my um, book, Death Makes a Holiday, A Cultural History of Halloween, which has been out of print for a long, long time, um, has just been repackaged mm-hmm. with a new... Um, Introduction and an afterword and new photographs and a wonderful new cover uh, uh, from Dover Books under the new title Halloween um, the the History of America's Darkest Holiday Mm -hmm. and um, it's uh, contractually it's going to be in print for the next 10 years Mm -hmm. so you should be able to find uh, I've already ordered a copy for the college where I work well thank you (laughs) Thank you very much. It'll probably be stolen, so get some backup copies. Oh, sure. I hope it'll be stolen. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, uh, Gordon uh, Melton told me that the first edition of his, uh, of the Vampire book, the very first edition, 1994, is one of the reasons they had to make a paperback was because the hardbacks kept being stolen from the libraries. Uh, and um, that's why they're not available, really. You can't find a first edition hardback copy much because mo- many of them were stolen, and they immediately switched to make a paperback edition. Uh, right after that to make it more readily available. I thought that was uh, Yeah, that's uh, been the, the bane mm-hmm. of some of my research. Um, um, archivists, especially in motion picture collections, um, have told me that uh, the two things they have the most difficulty, um, the, the, the two kinds of uh, uh, items that are stolen more than any others are anything having to do with Marilyn Monroe and hmm. anything having to do with Bela Lugosi. Interesting. And it's hmm. probably no, uh, along that lines, you know, Dracula is one of the most collectible titles right. uh, in terms of posters. And I mean, the, the highest prices are always commanded by those old universal mm-hmm. horror films. And books, since, uh, you know, unfortunately for the Stoker family, I think since the book was never copyrighted correctly in the United States, you know, I own 49 different editions of the book. Well, Does anybody can did. publish it. <laughs> that was kind of a dirty secret, right. and uh, Doubleday never uh, acknowledged the fact. It could have been challenged. Mm-hmm. The uh, Stoker bungled the copyright registration mm-hmm. in America. but uh, And if they wanted to, uh, Doubleday could have uh, um, stopped paying the Stoker family royalties mm-hmm. and... Uh, but they'd be cutting their own throat because anybody would be able to publish their own version of Dracula. Right. And so they kept paying the Stokers up until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the Stoker family 
um, still does receive mm. uh, royalties from the the 1927 stage play mm-hmm. of Dracula, and uh, which is will be in copyright, you know, um, at least till the uh, till around uh, 2030 at least. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the the 60s is about yeah. That's that's when most of the editions start popping up. My oldest copy is from 1965, and then from there, I just I have yeah. so many copies in paperback and hardback. And, yeah, film studios became aware of the copyright problem in the in the fifties, mm-hmm. and it emboldened them to use uh, the name in titles of films like mm-hmm. uh, "The Return of Dracula," "Blood of Dracula." Uh, these were before the copyright expired in England, mm-hmm. and before the supposed copy copyright expired here. But uh, people were uh, wising up, mm-hmm. and today it's in the public domain, and anyone right. can. Create any original adaptation of the um, the book they mm-hmm. like. I have a the, my most interesting is uh, the Ken Russell adaptation. <laughs> I the, yes, the, the, it was unpublished. In, 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 he yeah. used elements of it in his uh, uh, Lair of the White Worm, mm-hmm. but I really wish he had uh, been able to do it. it was, uh, they couldn't get funding for it because Universal had just announced their. Uh, their big remake with uh, Langella mm-hmm. and Laurence Olivier and uh, so that kind of it probably would be the most interesting version <laughs> on film oh it's one like going by the rest of his movies I do describe it and I quote you know from the mm-hmm. um, the unpublished script and uh, yeah it's one of the missed opportunities um, Dracula is nothing but missed opportunities mm-hmm. in its history there um, there were so many fascinating Adaptations that weren't done, or uh, or, or were scuttled, or or, or suppressed, and uh, but Dracula has all the time in the world. So, mm-hmm. all of you playwrights and filmmakers out there, uh, go to it. Many of them are working. Great. Well, I thank you for being here. I know you've got other engagements to move on to. So. Thank you. No, thank you yeah, so well, much. Thank you. Uh, great, enjoyed it. Great talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, author David J. Skull. And as always, you can find me at thevampirehistorian.com um, on Facebook, uh, The Vampire Historian, Twitter at Vamp Historian, um, on Instagram at The Vampire Historian also. Um, and again, don't forget to uh, check out thevampirehistorian.com uh, slash pledge for our new Patreon page uh, if you'd like to help support the podcast anyway. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.